You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, as you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. We're going to continue to look at Revelation 17 and 18. But the first passage that we'll look at is 1 John chapter 5. We looked at chapter 17 and 18 last week, but as I was saying earlier, I felt like we covered it really quickly. Obviously, in covering two chapters, um, we went quickly, and so I want to kind of go back through and hit on a couple of points that I felt like we maybe didn't cover as extensively as I would like for us to. And so we're going to roll with the same summary sentence that we had last week, just because we're continuing with that same theme. So for those that weren't here with us last week, um, the the whole summary of our, our sermon for today is the world is deceptively strong in seducing us to chase after everything but Jesus, but we have hope of victory if our names are written in the book of life and if we choose to separate ourselves from ungodly pursuits. Okay, The world is deceptively strong in seducing us to chase after everything but Jesus, but we have hope of victory if our names are written in the book of life and if we choose to separate ourselves from ungodly pursuits. For our kids, the, thing of this, the things of this world are very attractive, but Jesus offers something that is better. The idea we saw from 17 and 18 is that the world is pictured like a prostitute. It is pictured in such a way where it is very seductive and alluring, trying to entice us to wander from everything but Jesus, to pursue everything but Jesus, that it's very tempting in its efforts, and that if your name's not written in the book of life, you're most likely going to, to give in to that temptation, that you're going to be deceived uh, by the presentation that the world offers. And so um, it's so important for us to be saved, obviously. It's our protection, our names being written in the book of life. All that is God and his work, right? God calls us and chooses us. We see that, and we're going to see that again today. He, he ordains our salvation, and yet there's heavy responsibility placed upon man in this chapter too, right? Because John says that God is calling us out to be separated, calling us to be faithful. And so there's human responsibility as well that we have to respond to the gospel. We have to make efforts towards our salvation or our sanctification after salvation. So like we're, we're seeking to work out our salvation, still comes back to God working in and through us, right? So even our efforts to be separated from the world, to um, to be faithful. I mean, we know that's all of God's work as well, but there's responsibility on our part to pursue those things. And so while our names are written in the book of life, we're challenged to be faithful and to be separated from the things of this world as well. And so we'll see that again today. But from last week's standpoint, we talked about separating from a world that is seductive because we talked about the world being attractive in its methods. We talked specifically in Revelation chapter 17 about that cup that the, the woman of Babylon offers um, says in uh, verse 4, the woman, chapter 17, verse 4, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And so we said that ultimately she has this beautiful cup, but it's full of deadly contents. We talked about the the image there in the, the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, where that, that cup is very beautiful on the outside, but it results in death. Um, and so we can't be um, enticed by outward appearance alone. 
We talked about the world being effective in its methods. We see the woman sitting in, in a type of authority over many waters, and we saw the waters representing uh, multiple people groups. We saw the church being victorious as it resists this Babylonian woman. We see the lamb conquering her um, and those that are with Jesus being able to conquer her as well. We talked about preparing for a world that is murderous, right? That, that, the, that the world seeks to kill Christians because the Christians are trying to resist her allurement. And so we have to be prepared that, that we will continue to endure persecution as a collective church, even though we may not see that here in the States. We certainly know that's going on around the world. We need to remain on guard for a world that is resilient and organized. We talked about how the, the world and its temptations keep coming back in various forms, right? Until Jesus comes back, we will continue to see world empires that, that rise, that persecute the church, that, that seek to distort the gospel, and then those will fall, and then another one will come. And so there's this type of resurrection that continues to take place for the world as well, we saw last week. And we talked about rejecting a world that's terminal, that the time is short, that it's allowed to reign for an hour, but ultimately Jesus comes to win the great battle. And the application we saw last week, we said, determine what you love most about this world, and then de- determine what it would look like to love it too much, and then tell someone in your accountability group so they can effectively warn you if you allow it to get to that point. Okay, so that basic exercise that I gave you last week was Figure out what it is that you would be most tempted to love about this world, something that you could potentially abuse to the point where you would be guilty of loving this world too much. To identify that in your life, what that, what that thing is, and then to kind of impress upon it, what would it look like to abuse it? What would that have to look like in my life for me to then abuse this thing and then communicate it to somebody that can hold you accountable? So we did that in our accountability group this past Wednesday. Um, Ryan and Ben and I had the chance to meet, and so we were talking about things that we loved about this world, what it would look like for us to abuse that love and love it too much so that we, as an accountability group, could be aware of that and could help identify that and, and call it out if we ever see the other one getting to that point. So if we ever see each other loving the world too much in this way, we could then lovingly call that out in each other's lives. That's what I desire for all of you is that in your accountability groups, you would, you would be not just hearers of last week's sermon, but doers. You'd step back and say, okay, this is what it looks like for me to love the world too much. Let me communicate that to somebody else so that if I ever start to love the world too much, I've got somebody built in to come rescue me, to come help me, to come awaken me back to um, the things that I should be pursuing. Okay? So we continue off this summary sentence this week, talking about the deception of the world, that it's seducing us or seeking to seduce us, but we have hope of victory if our names are written in the book of life and if we choose to separate ourselves from ungodly pursuits. Today I want to give you three questions (coughs) that I feel like kind of come out of last week. I'll try to answer those with five points under each one. We'll go quickly so that we don't run out of time. Um, But I want us to try to answer these three questions, okay? So question number one is, why is the world pictured as a prostitute in these two chapters? For our kids, the world promises to make us happy, but ultimately disappoints us. For our adults, let's look at why the world would be pictured with such a, a negative, such a vivid picture in these two chapters. Why is it pictured this way, okay? So let's look at five reasons why I think God reveals to John in this way, the world in this type of format. Okay, number one, there is a self-consumed mindset 
in loving the world. There is a self-consumed mindset in loving the world. Now, I told you to turn to 1 John chapter 5. And I meant to read this before we got into these five points. So in talking about the world as a prostitute, 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Okay, so even though God is in control of everything, God's sovereignty reigns supreme over everything. It's his universe. He runs it and orchestrates it the way that he wants to. He does give power and allows Satan to exercise power over this world. So this world is being run in a, in a sense by Satan as far as Satan is allowed to use his ploys and his schemes and his deceits, right? Um, it can only work against people whose names aren't written in the book of life. So ultimately Satan doesn't have any control but the picture here is that the world's schemes are being run by Satan under the authority of God, and we need to be aware of that. And so when we talk about the world being like a prostitute, <coughs> it's a self-consumed mindset that we have to demonstrate in loving the world. Think about one who would pursue a relationship with a prostitute, right? There, there's no concern about anybody else, only the individual, right? Like this is something that I desire, something that I want, and so I'm going to pursue it regardless of the consequences, regardless of what other people think, right? There's no, there's no love, there's no perspective about anything except for self-interest. And that's completely contrary to what 1 John says as an entire book, right? Like 1 John is the book that you go to if you want reassurance about your salvation, okay? Like it's the book that, that you would be encouraged to go to by any pastor, any type of religious leader, if you're questioning your salvation, not really sure about your salvation, you go to 1 John because 1 John gives you kind of tests to, to work through about whether or not you're saved or not. Does anybody know the, the three primary tests of 1 John about whether you're a Christian or not a Christian? You have to, um, you have, to have right theology about Jesus, right? So, so you have to kind of measure your belief system with what God's word says about Jesus, right? So that's where some of the cults out there, um, like the Mormons, would, would fail this test, right? Like their theology of Jesus is wrong. Um, I got kind of a, I've gotten multiple kickbacks from a family that was looking to come to Trinity um, that come from a Mormon, uh, Mormon background, go to a Mormon church, and, and they were very critical of Trinity saying, hey, we, we, can't, we can't accept you because you're Mormon. Yeah, but you say that you accept all denominations and that you're non-denominational. And the problem is, is that we're not talking about a denomination here. Like we're talking about a different religion, right? Because their, their theology of Jesus is different. We can worship with other denominations because we're all worshiping Jesus. We're all worshiping the same Jesus. We all say the same things about Jesus. How we worship him looks a little bit different in our churches, right? Like some of our understandings of scripture divide us denominationally, but we're still pursuing the same Jesus. You step outside of that and you start working towards a different Jesus, now it's not a denomination, right? So first test in 1 John is, do you have right theology about Jesus? Second test would be, do you obey his commands? The third test would be, do you love the right things? Because 1 John sets itself up as, you love other people, you don't love the world and the things of the world, okay? So when we talk about the, the, the world being like a prostitute, man, that's self-love, that's self-interest, that is selfishness at its core, First John says believers don't love themselves like that. They love other people. They pursue serving other people. Okay, so the world is pictured this way because to love the world is to be self-consumed 
and self-interested. Number two, there is a great allurement in loving the world. There is great allurement in loving the world. Certainly a, a prostitute decorates themselves in such a way where they would be enticing to those who come by and are strictly judging off the outward appearance, right? Like, like when somebody is bent on pursuing that, they're not interested in the character of the individual, right? Like they're not interested in whether or not this person has similar interests as they do. They're not interested in their family background, right? Like it's all about the physical appearance. It's all about the physical enticement. And the world has that. The world looks very good outwardly as though we should pursue it. Like there's, there's good things that it appears to offer. And Revelation 17 and 18 show that at first glance, the world does look very good to John as he gets this vision. In Revelation chapter 17, actually Revelation chapter 18, verse 16. It says, alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. So these people are referring back to the physical description of this great city Babylon, this woman who is pictured as this great city. She's clothed in fine linen, right? If you skip ahead to Revelation 19, which is the next chapter we'll get to next week, Revelation 19, verse 8. We'll look at verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has, been, has made herself ready. So here's another woman pictured here, the, the bride of Jesus, who we know to be the church. Look what she's clothed with. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure so the, the, the world's going to look very good to the outside. In fact, it sometimes looks very much like the bride of Christ in some ways. It looks very good, but it's deceiving based on what's on the inside. Both are clothed in linen. Both are covered in precious stones. Revelation seventeen four, when Babylon is being described, very beautiful on the outside. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and ador- adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. This is the picture of, of the, the godless world. And then we skip ahead to Revelation chapter 21, verse 18. The new Jerusalem that's coming. The wall was built of jasper while the city was of pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agati, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth Chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And there's a lot of similarities in how the, the city of Babylon and the city of Jerusalem is being pictured. They both look very good on the outside. Only one is good on the inside, though. If you were to go and read Exodus chapter 25, Exodus chapter 28, you would also see some similarities in the way that the city of Babylon is pictured in comparison to the Old Testament priests and how they adorn themselves as well. And so the world, the point that that I think is being made here is that the world looks very good on the outside. There's great allurement in loving the world because it looks good at first. But number three, there is temptation for immediate satisfaction in loving the world, right? Going back to why is it pictured as a prostitute? Because it promises immediate satisfaction, right? Like, Like instantaneous, 
Right? This isn't about pursuing uh, an individual towards marriage and experiencing the, the satisfaction in the marriage relationship. It's about immediate satisfaction. It's the, what I would call the Esau syndrome, right? Going back to our study in Genesis, what does Esau do? Esau forfeits his birthright for immediate gratification with the pot of stew. So he's, he's tempted because his, his body says, I need this right now. I cannot delay. I cannot wait. And so he seizes control of that pot of stew and basically tells Jacob, take whatever you want as long as it doesn't rob me of joy right now, right? And so the world says, I can give you immediate satisfaction and, and men, men are deceived, mankind is deceived, men and women are deceived by the world because the, they say, you know what? Give me immediate satisfaction right now no matter what it costs me later because what we see in Revelation 17 and 18 is that it does cost later that loving the world does bring judgment upon individuals. Number four, there is great disappointment in loving the world. The satisfaction doesn't last, right? So going back to the picture of the prostitute, like that, that old movie um, with Richard Gere and Julia Roberts, Pretty Woman, like that, that's, not, that's not how it plays itself out on a daily basis, right? Like, like people don't pursue and then marry harlots. They don't. Like, that doesn't happen. Like, that, that's Hollywood glorifying something that doesn't happen. There's immediate satisfaction and then immediate disappointment and immediate rejection in that relationship, right? Like, it was self-centered, self-focused, and then once it's, once it's attained, it's discarded. And that's the picture that we saw, remember, last week where, where the world kind of turns on itself, like it uses itself up, like it's finished with itself, and it kind of hates itself now. I, I used the illustration last week with how I've abused football as a coach and how it, it, it almost kind of led me to almost hate coaching because I was finding it unsatisfying in my own personal life. Great disappointment in loving the world. And number five, there is a high price to pay in loving the world. Just like when you pursue a prostitute, there's a high price to pay. There's a high price to pay in loving the world as well. There's a lot of reasons for the world to be pictured in this manner. It's self-consumed, it has great allurement, it tempts with immediate satisfaction, it, it produces great disappointment, and it demands a high price. The world lies under the control of the evil one, and it seeks to destroy. Number two, why should we not love the world? Why should we not pursue the world pictured in such a way? For our kids, we cannot love the world and God at the same time. We cannot love the world and God at the same time. From our text in Revelation, we can get the first reason for not loving the world, and that's because it seeks to persecute and to deceive. In Revelation chapter 17, verse 6, And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Right? The world seeks to persecute Christians, seeks to destroy Christians. Verse 8, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. We talked about how the world very deceptive, and it seeks to allure people to it, and so it seeks to deceive 
by seeking to provide that immediate satisfaction. And so two reasons. One, we don't want to love the world because it seeks to persecute us. Two, it seeks to deceive as well. Christ and the church are the targets in both of these cases. Number two, it can cause us to abandon the faith. It can cause us to abandon the faith. I think one of the more tragic verses in Scripture is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9. Paul's talking to Timothy, and he says, Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Imagine, imagine being a close friend, a close confidant of Paul, one of the, the great church planners of all time, right? The guy who, who Jesus uh, radically converts, uh, brings him from killing Christians to uh, spending the rest of his life seeking to, to bring people to Christ and to, to have uh, him as your ministry partner, to, to be working alongside of Paul and to, to be enticed by the things of this world to the point that you abandon Paul in order to pursue other things. It's, it's a tragic story. And Paul says, I need help. I need encouragement because I've lost somebody close to me. And I lost him because he fell in love with the things of this world. Like Demas, Demas either didn't have accountability set up or he ignored the accountability that was in his life. But, but he probably didn't do the activity that I gave you last week. And that was determine what it is that you could potentially love too much about this world and tell somebody so they can come get you if you ever start to border on that. Demas had something in his life, we're not told what, something in his life that he loved far too much, loved it more than Jesus, and it caused him to abandon his faith, to walk away from Paul, to walk away from the ministry, to pursue it instead of Jesus. And if we're not careful, the same could be true of us. Because remember, in Revelation chapter 17, we're talking about the lost, the world marveling at the beast. And even the apostle John does so. Remember, he's, he's put into the wilderness, but it says in verse 6, when I saw her, I marveled greatly. This week, as I was kind of looking back over this, I put down, John was attracted to the world. How much more should we expect to be attracted by the world? I mean, here's a guy who, who walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, spent real one-on-one time with Jesus. Right, like he, he saw Jesus dying on the cross. He witnessed Jesus resurrecting from the dead. I mean, he has every reason to believe in Jesus, has every reason to trust Jesus over the things of this world. And John says, man, you know what? <laughs> when I got a real good picture of the world, I kind of had to pause for a second. Man, it looks really good. The things that this world offers looks really good. If, if that's true of the apostle John, how much more on guard must we be? that we too could be like a Demas who says, you know what, the things of this world, they look really good and I'm gonna pursue that for a while. I'm gonna go after that. I'm gonna go chasing after that for a while. It can cause us to abandon the faith. Number three, it prevents us from loving God at the same time. If we love, try to love the world, we can't love God at the same time. Let's go to 1 John chapter two. We read this verse last week, but I want us to kind of unpack it a little bit more right now. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. There's some really good sermons online about this passage that you could reference if you want to, if you would like to study this passage more. I know, uh, I think John Piper has one from like 1985 that you can search, and there's also one on Ligonier's website that Kevin DeYoung did at one of R.C. Sproul's conferences maybe three or four years ago. 
Um, I can't remember the date on it, but um, both are really good sermons. Both address this passage in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Okay? What we find here in this chunk of scripture is that we can't love God and the world at the same time. John says, if you love the world, you don't have love for the Father in you. That you can't have both. And on top of that, he talks about the desires of the flesh, the eyes, the pride of life. He says, that's not from the Father, that's from the world. So they're, they're contrary to each other. They're at odds with each other. And so John says, you can't love both at the same time. It's impossible to do so. We either love the things of this world or we, we use the things of this world to show our love for God. Let me show you how that works in 1 John chapter 3. We'll come back to this section in chapter 2. But 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. We'll start in verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So First John 2, John says, don't love the world, the things of this in the, uh, in the world. You can't love the world and love God at the same time. Then he gives us like a real practical application. He says, look, you're going to be given stuff. You're going to earn stuff. You're going to achieve stuff in life. And here's how you know whether or not you love the world or you love God. What do you do with that stuff, right? He says, you see people in need, brothers, which is really the idea here, other Christians, you see people in need and you hold on to your stuff, you cling to your stuff, you're, you're, a, you're a world lover. You're, you're a lover of the things of this world. But if you identify people in your life that need things and you're using those things, well, you're a God lover, right? Like you don't, you don't cling too tightly to the things of this world. You actually see the things of this world as a way to show your love for God. And that's, that's the big difference here. So we're not saying that, to, not, to, to, to love the world means to have things. We're saying that to love the world is to have things and to hang on to them too tightly, to not use them as a means of worshiping God, as a means of showing your love for God. That's the idea here going on in 1 John 2 and 1 John chapter 3, that it's impossible to love both at the same time. John says you can't love God and see people in need and hang on to your stuff and say, I love God so much. Because God says to love me is to love other people, to serve other people, okay? Our desires, the things of this world, must be filtered through our desire for God's glory. Two passages I'll read to you real quickly to show this. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 1 Corinthians 1 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So here's the idea. How do we make sure that our desires aren't desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride of life? 
How do we make sure that they're healthy, God-loving desires? Man, we take anything that we want in this world, anything that we desire about this world, and we filter it through whether or not it's a desire to have those things, obtain those things for God-honoring purposes. Okay, so think about a desire for a promotion at work, right? Is the desire for the promotion at work for worldly selfish reasons or for God-honoring reasons, right? Like, do you, do you anticipate desire the promotion at work because the schedule changes at work allow you to be more kingdom-focused moving forward in your calendar, right? Like, I really want this promotion because it will change my work hours at, at work, and it now frees me up to be more involved in kingdom purposes because right now my schedule is limited because of my work schedule. I can't be at certain things. I can't do certain things because I'm obligated to be at work. Uh, that would be an example that you could desire it because man, I'm going to have more money, and that means more toys for me, bigger house, bigger whatever. Or it can be, I desire this thing because it's going to allow me to be more kingdom-minded. Even if it's, I want more money so that I can be kingdom-minded, that's a healthy perspective, right? And again, the things of this world aren't bad, because I could even say, I want the promotion because I want a bigger house, because right now I can't host a C group at my house because our living room is just too small. So there's, there's a lot of ways to pursue the things of this world and to do so with a healthy, God-honoring perspective and it not be about the things of this world. It's up to us to kind of filter through those desires and say, why do I want these things? Why am I pursuing these things? Is it the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life? Or is it because in everything that I do, I want to bring honor to God? In everything that I, want to, I do, I want to bring glory to him. John says, you get things so that you can use things for God's glory. But what Satan wants us to do is to abuse things. Going back to 1 John chapter 2. Uh, let's see here. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Don't love the world, the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. Let's group those first two together. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, or some of your translations may say the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. Those two combined, it's talking about us desiring things that we don't have. Satan wants us to want things that we don't have, and he uses outside evil to entice the inside evil of our flesh, causing us to crave anything outside God desires for us. Okay, so here's how Satan works. Satan says, I want you to love the things of this world so much that I'm going to use the allurement. It looks really good. I'm going to entice you because I know you have a sin nature. I know you have evil inside of you. And so I'm going to entice the inside evil with outside evil and cause you to crave things that you do not have, to, to desire things that you can't have, to, to, to pursue things that maybe God has even told you not to have. And he does this by lying to us and attacking our minds. John 8, 44, we know that Satan is the father of lies. In um, 2 Corinthians eleven three, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, I am afraid, Paul says, that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. 
Paul says, man, he's talking to this church at Corinth, and he says, I, I'm, I'm scared that in the same way Satan lied to Eve and caused her to deviate from a pure devotion to Christ, that your thoughts as well will be perverted in such a way that you deviate from a pure devotion to Jesus. Satan attacks us with our minds. He tempted Eve by causing her. So going back to the illustration that Paul uses, what was the ploy by Satan back with Eve? It was to cause Eve to doubt the word of God and to doubt the goodness of God. Man, and for our youth, as you guys are continuing to grow up, these are the two things that you're going to be confronted with constantly as you move outside the umbrella of your parents' faith. You're going to be led by the enemy to doubt the word of God. Does God's word really say that? And then to doubt whether it's good that it says that, right? So I want, I want you to, qu- Satan says, I want you to question whether God's word even says that. And if I can't win that battle and you're just really dug in on the fact that no, God's word really says that for him to then question, cause you to question and say, but should it? Is it a good thing that God's word says that? It's how, he, it's how he won the victory over Eve, right? He's got Eve and Adam and Eve to start questioning whether God's word said that and then questioning whether it was good for it to say that. Our minds are attacked by Satan. The answer is obviously for us to renew our minds to avoid his lies. We know Romans 12, 1 and 2. Let me give you a couple other passages, though, that, that talk about the renewal of our mind and why it's necessary to win the victory over the allurement of the world. In Romans chapter 8, verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Important for our minds to be set on the right things. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So the answer to Satan's attacks against our minds is to have our minds renewed constantly by his word. Philippians 4, 8 talks about the type of things that we even allow our minds to dwell on, right? Things that are lovely and pure and wholesome. But God, or Satan also seeks to attack our bodies, He seeks to disqualify us with our bodies. Romans chapter 6, verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Our bodies are are a gift to us, right? And we have a responsibility to use our bodies to glorify God. And if we're not careful, Satan will tempt us to the other extreme, right? 1 Corinthians 7, 5, we talked about that passage when we talked about divorce, right? We talked about man and woman being together physically and it being used as a protective measure so that they don't wander from the marriage relationship because Satan will seek to tempt us 
in that way. Satan's world is designed to allure our bodies into sin. His goal is to make us use our bodies for dishonor rather than for God's glory by drawing our physical passions towards sin. The answer is that we have to cage our bodies or control our bodies to keep them from sin. 1 Corinthians 9.27 is a passage where Paul, the Apostle Paul, the church planter, he says, you know what? I have to control my body because if I'm not actively trying to control it, it will do sinful things. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27. Paul says, I discipline my body. I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified, right? Like this is the verse that, that pastors don't apply when you hear about the scandals in churches where they, where they fall and pray to sexual sin. They, they allowed their bodies to be uncaged and they became disqualified after preaching. And I heard another story this week of um, an athletic director for a school that we play. He's been the athletic director there for I think 35 years, and he was let go this week after all that time at that school because of an extramarital affair within the school. He, he, didn't, he, didn't, he didn't control his body. He didn't cage his body. He allowed the allure, the enticement of the world, the, the immediate satisfaction to cause him to say yes and no matter what it costs me in the future. No matter if it costs me my job, my family, I'm saying yes to the immediate satisfaction because it looks right. It looks good. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, it's Satan getting us to desire the things that we don't have. But 1 John chapter 2 also tells us to fight against the concept of the pride of life. Don't love the things of this world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, it's things that we don't have. Pride of life, it's what we do have. It's the abuse of what we already have. Satan wants us to to become prideful and to seek to be better than those around us. We talked about in 17 and 18 how Babylon is called Babylon the Great. That, that phrase comes from the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 4, verse 30. This is when Nebuchadnezzar gets striked, or he gets striked for his pride, and it's because he's declaring kind of boastfully, I've made Babylon great. Like, look at the great empire that I've constructed. Right? He sees no, no obligation to give God glory for the things that he's been blessed with, and God strikes him for it. And so the whole idea of Babylon the Great comes from a boastful, prideful mindset of Nebuchadnezzar. Satan attacks our dependence, and he feeds pride to us. A couple of passages that you could look at, Second Chronicles chapter 26, talks about the pride of Uzziah and his fall. I encourage you to read that chapter on your own. Um, Romans chapter 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. 1 Timothy chapter 3 talks about the, the need to be very cautious in appointing leadership within the church because of prideful reasons. It says in 1 Timothy 3, 6, he, talking about an elder, must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Satan wants us to become impatient with God's will, operate outside of his will, to start acting like we have the right to be in control and to make choices based on what we want to do. The answer to that problem, so... We answer the attacks against our mind by renewing our mind, 
We cage our bodies so that Satan can't attack us and use our bodies for sinful purposes. We have to remain conscious of our dependence on God for everything. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is a passage where God even challenges Israel. He says, when you get into the promised land, keep in mind that you're living in houses that you didn't build. You're enjoying land that you didn't really obtain. You're eating the food that you didn't grow. This is all gifted to you by me. And so God even challenges Israel. He says, lest you forget about me, keep in mind everything that I've given to you. We're constantly dependent upon God, remaining grateful for his will. All right, number four, it does not last. Why should we not love the world? Because it doesn't last. It's like making a poor investment. For those that are um, going through the Dave Ramsey class, I mean, this is, this is buying stock in a, in a company that's gone bankrupt, and you know it. I mean, none of us would, would buy stock in a, in a company that is tanking at the time, that it has gone bankrupt. It's like boarding a sinking ship to, to love the things of this world and to know that the Bible teaches the world is passing away is like investing in a, in, a, in a poor company that is bankrupt. Number five, it brings judgment upon those who love it as well. It brings judgment upon those who love it. Back in 1 John chapter 2, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The alternative is eternity with God. Loving him and not this world produces eternity with him. We've talked about loving him. We show, we show our love for him by doing his will according to 1 John chapter 5, 3 and 4. All right, last question, and we're going to go through this one really quickly. How should we relate to the world instead? All right, the world, pictured as a prostitute because of the way that it presents itself. Why should we not love the world? It persecutes us. It deceives us. It could cause us to abandon the faith. It prevents us from loving God at the same time. It's not going to last. It brings judgment. So how should we relate to the world instead? If we're not supposed to love it, How are we to relate to it? For our kids, we should live differently from the world. We should live differently. Number one, we ought to be hated by the world. According to Jesus in John chapter 15, verse 19, he chose us out of the world, and because he chose us out of the world, the world should now reject us and hate us. We ought to be hated by the world. Number two, we no longer walk with the world. We're no longer in alliance with the world. We used to be in our sin, and that all changes at salvation. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The Spirit is now work, now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's how we used to live. We used to live aligned with the world, but we no longer walk in that way. Number three, we're now dead to the world. Galatians chapter six fourteen talks about us being crucified with Christ, making us now dead to the world. We're striving to fight against that allurement to go back. Number four, we're to, we're to make war against the world. James chapter four, verse four. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, who, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So the flip side would be true. If you want to be a friend of God, then you make yourself an enemy of the world. To be friends with the world is to be an enemy of God. And number five, we have the power to overcome the world. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. 
Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? All right, so there's, there's two big truths that I want you to remember. If you forget everything else that we've talked about in chapter 17 and 18, I want you to remember these two things from our study in Revelation. Number one, that God keeps us from seduction and persecution. God keeps us from those things. For our kids, God promises to protect us. What's very clear in chapter 17 and 18 is that God keeps us as Christians from the seduction and the persecution of the world. Our names are in the book of life, we're told. Luke chapter 10, verse 20, Jesus says uh, to his disciples, he says, man, don't don't celebrate over the fact that, that you have control over demonic spirits in this situation. He tells them to rejoice over the fact that their names are written in the book of life. Like, I mean, that's, that's our grounds for rejoicing. It's why, it's why we can celebrate and worship here on a Sunday morning that Jesus is back from the dead and that our names are written in the book of life. We um, were called, Romans 8, 28 through 32, we've already looked at Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 14, we've been chosen. God keeps us from the seduction and persecution of the world. And the second truth that I want you to remember is we must be faithful and separated. Okay, so we've got this great work of God, And then we have this second great work of God that we participate in, and that's being faithful to him and being separated to him. Last week, we talked about being separated in our minds, Romans 12, our lifestyle. It's that picture we used of Jesus and his interaction with Zacchaeus, that that he serves as a point of light to draw people out of darkness. Be faithful and separated. In order for us to do that, We have to strive to fight evil, to hate evil, to reject evil, be on guard against it. Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Romans 16, 19 talks about us being innocent about the things that are evil. We strive to hate evil. We strive to fight sin together. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 14 talks about how important it is for us to fight sin through accountability. And then lastly, we don't give Satan any type of foothold in our life. Ephesians chapter 4, this is the last passage that I'll read. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that you may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I love that little piece in verse 27. It says, give no opportunity to the devil. So we said, strive to hate evil, strive to fight sin together. And then this last one, I mean, I taught some of you guys this like years ago. Um, as I was looking back through some of our discipleship material that we had gone through back at Mount Gilead, we talked about um, striving to keep Satan off the beach. All right, it's the, con- the military concept of trying to gain a footing on the beach or having a beachhead. Right? And what I wrote in my notes way back then, years ago, a beachhead is a military term used to describe the line created when a unit reaches a beach 
and begins to defend that area of the beach while other reinforcements help out until a large enough unit begins to advance beyond the beach. The concept is that if the enemy can obtain the beach, it can begin to solidify its presence and set up a base of operations. As Christians, we must strive to keep Satan off the beach in our own lives by not allowing sin to gain ground and establish a presence. Satan wants us to doubt the goodness of God's word and follow a new plan that actually leads to destruction. Man, so the idea here as we leave chapter 17 and 18 is that we don't give Satan any type of opportunity to gain a beachhead in our life. If he establishes a presence, he now has a base of operations where he can continue to move into our life. If he begins to grip our hearts with the things of this world, we give him just a little bit, man, he begins to operate from that position and can seek to advance further into our lives. Jesus says, don't even give him an opportunity. Keep him off the beach. Confess these things, remove these things from your life. Don't give him an opportunity. Our application question that I want to leave you with, and it, and it kind of goes hand in hand with last week's. And I can't stress to you enough, like, I really try to think through the application points, and I really try to leave you with something that you can do based on what you've heard, right? Because I know there's a, there's a lot of things that I said this morning, a lot of things that you're going to forget, a lot of things that may have even gone over your head. It's why I give you the summary sentence, right? Here's what we're talking about today. The world is really enticing. It's really seductive, but we can gain victory over it because our names are in the book of life and if we remain separated, right? So last week I challenged you. What would it look like for you to become Demas, basically? What would it look like for you to love something about this world so much that you would abandon things for it? Picture what that would have to look like. Tell somebody. Tell somebody. Don't give Satan an opportunity. This this week's question, what are some ways that you're striving to separate yourself from the world so that you don't love it too much? So last week's question What does it look like for you to love the world too much? Secondly, what are you doing beyond just telling your accountability group? What are you doing to keep yourself separated so that you don't love it too much? Right? Going back to my illustration last week, I could have easily confessed the the idolatry in my heart about coaching football, confessed it, experienced God's forgiveness, and then given it another go this year and said, okay, I'm going to do better this year with it. But instead, I said, you know what? I'm going to step back. I'm going to separate. I'm not going to give Satan the opportunity. I'm going to adjust my life so that I can't love it too much this year. And in fact, I even told my my accountability group this week, I said, now here's where I see Satan already trying to operate in my life now that I've stepped back. It's to become critical of those who are now in the position that I held last year, right? So, So I told you last week, man, I had such a pressure on me to get pats on the back from people, from dads, about how good of a coach I was. Now I step back, and immediately after one week of football practice, the temptation is I want the dads to think that the new guy didn't do as good of a job as me last year and still come pat me on the back, right? So I have to fight against that and prayerfully separate myself from those things and really attack it by trying to encourage the guy who's taken over from me and really try to support him and help him so that he can get all the accolades and all the attention and none of it comes to me. Separate yourself from the things of this world so that you don't love it too much. That's my challenge for you this week. What are some ways you are striving to separate yourself 
from things in this world that you would be tempted to love too much. Let's pray together. God, I pray that as we've kind of rehashed some things that we've already talked about, things that you've already taught us, God, I pray that it would sink in even deeper than it has previously. I pray that we'd be really challenged by the fact that the things of this world are very enticing. They were enticing to the Apostle John. They were enticing to Demas. God, we should fully expect that we're going to be enticed by these things as well. Father, I pray that we would be very proactive in guarding ourselves from loving the things of this world. God, help us not to desire things that we don't have to an unhealthy manner. Protect us from the desires of the flesh and the desires of our eyes. Help us not to buy into Satan's lies that we need those things. God, help us to be protected from the pride of life, from abusing the things that we do have, using them for our own self-glory. God, help us to keep in mind that everything that you've blessed us with, everything that you've given to us, it's really just a way for us to show others how much we love you. God, challenge us that in the things that we have, we should cling very loosely to those things. And we should find ways to use them for your glory and for ways to further your kingdom. God, help us to filter the desires that we have for things of this world through that mindset of trying to honor you with those things. So God, if we desire promotions, if we desire materialistic type things, God, help us to desire those things so that we can bring further glory to you. Help us not to love those things as an end of themselves. Help us to keep in mind those things are passing away. Help us to keep our minds set on spiritual things and not earthly things. Give us the humility to to share with others what it would look like for us to love the things of this world too much. Give us the resolve to separate ourselves from the things of this world so that we don't love it too much. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.